When I was a girl, I fell in love with finding secret things. Some of the biggest secrets are right in plain sight. We don't see them because we can't see them. We've been taught not to see them. They're willful secrets, chosen secrets, blind spots. And the biggest blind spot of all is how society impacts men and what ignoring that impact means for all of us. Like a furry torpedo to the jugular. This is Honey Badger Radio. Radio Bite. Hello and welcome to Honey Badger Radio. My name is Allison Tiemann and with me is Hannah Wallen and Brian Martinez. And we will be your hosts for this week's HBR Digest, where we go over the last week in Badger. As always, if you want to support the show, mosey on over to feedthebadger.com for a number of exquisite and delectable feed options. And if you'd like to get a taste of our community, please head over to badgernation.online and enjoy our public square. Feeling the social isolation blues? Have fun with fellow Badger fans. So. FeedTheBadger.com to make sure these shows keep coming, and BadgerNation.online to sample the fun in our community. And now it is time. Brian. Yep. We had a very controversial guest on Monday. Why don't you uh, tell him who he to tell tell us about him? Okay. And 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 how the conversation went. Uh well. We had someone reach out to us, so this is a little bit unusual. Usually, I try to find people to talk to that uh, are speaking about issues that are directly related or just sort of somewhat related to men's issues, right? So it was a little bit unusual uh, because that's not normally how you know these these are done. And his name is Nate, and he represents a community I believe called White Wellbeing. And what white well-being does is they're they're people who push back on what they call anti-whiteism, uh, which is you know these sort of like anti-Western narratives that we see coming from the social justice cult, uh, to put it simply and bluntly. And he wanted to come on to explain what they do, who they represent, and also encourage people to help them push back on these anti-white narratives that they that they uh, are about. They are not a white nationalist. They are not racist. They are, they are just trying to essentially protect um, what they call whiteness or white and promote white well-being. I wanted to talk to him because I had a couple of theories and ideas that I wanted to bounce off of him to see how he would respond. And so um, for example, I don't think he quite gets it because he's a little too focused on the race thing. Because he legitimately seems to believe that on some level uh, there is an actual anti-white, um, you know, like agenda, I guess, to, you know, attack uh, Western nations through the anti-racism of the woke left. And um, he puts that forward. But I explained to him that the, this this idea, OK, Um I believe that feminism is nothing but a gigantic con. It's a grift. The people who practice it and promote it and push it forward, even though they are ruining the lives of men in many ways and their policies result in that, and they uh, effectively enslave men through taxation and they push for more and more of these things, I don't think that feminists actually hate men any more than they hate women. Uh, ultimately, they're just doing what will get them the most power, and they know that narratives of women worsting and women as victims and men as oppressors is an effective means to do that. So if I accept that feminism 
isn't really anti-male. Like those women don't actually hate men. In fact, they want to be just like them in a lot of ways. Um, then I believe the same is true of this sort of, uh, you know, racial justice narrative that's going around um, that really sounds anti-white, which this guy is responding to. Because ultimately what I believe is happening is it's another scam. It's a grift. These people don't actually have an opinion on whites. They just want power. And Western countries have the power they want at the time. This is only something that will happen in highly developed, really comfortable first world countries where everyone has plentiful food and shelter and they have the internet and they have cell phones and they have electricity that runs and plumbing and all these other things. They just want what uh, those countries have. And it just so happens that the United States is a majority white country. So that's the narrative they're going to use in that case. But as the demographics change, and they will, they're simply going to change tactics. So it, it's not really about race. And I told him that and I explained that to him. And um, I said that you can continue to go down this road in, in the way that you choose to frame it. And I don't think that anyone should fear that what you're saying is in any way controversial, because if people of any other race were asking for the same thing, we wouldn't treat them that way. But I want him to be aware that what he is doing is playing by their rules. When you accept or when you start defending yourself on the basis of race, you are playing their game. When the truth is, um, there is there is as much diversity, I guess you could say, within people that are considered to be white as there is any other race is from it from you know other sort of subgroups within it. So this is a um, I think that he's playing a kind of losing game. Now, I'm okay. And, and he agreed with me on some of this. And he basically said, yeah, I know that ultimately this isn't about white people. This is about, you know, uh, power. This is about resources. This is about finding a way around meritocracy itself, which is ultimately what's under attack here. And, um, uh, but, but because they want to convince normies, they feel like they have to play by these rules. So, we basically talked a little bit about what they're about. I gave them my thoughts on it. Um, I think that the best way to win is not to play the way that they're playing and to point out for other people the game that's actually being played here and hope that some people wise up to that. So that was our discussion. I didn't. I don't think it was in any way controversial. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought. I thought you know why can't white people talk about stuff in this way? So. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I'll just leave that opinion to you, Brian. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> you can officially allow white people to talk about these things, and then we will. Um, but uh, uh, what I wanted to point out is that the, the idea that a way of getting power is to go up to someone who already has power and tell them how they owe it to you to use that power for your benefit because they have violated you in some unspecified nebulous way that they can never unviolate or 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 repent for they just have to perpetually use their power in your favor and give you money i mean this yeah. is this is a grift going up to a, a powerful group of people or a group of people with power and saying you owe me money because you have harmed me that's what this, all of this stuff is. That's what social justice is. It's just a means to going up to a group of people with power and saying, you owe me stuff because you have harmed me. Yep. And it doesn't matter if it's, 
you know, the, these racial narratives, which I, I find it hilarious that people who talk about being all being all about love can't seem to get away from needing a scapegoat. And really interestingly, having a scapegoat and then walking up to the group of people that they scapegoat and saying, you hate me because of insert characteristic, now protect, love, care about me and do everything for me. Yes. It's... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, and, and the fact that the people doing this know that if they walk up to whites or men or whatever and basically say you owe us for grievances and harm that you've done historically or with your words. But not when you, you approach them. No, no, no. Yeah. But when you approach them and you know that they're going to give you what you want, then you know that you're lying about the, and that this is a grift because only someone like who of someone who legitimately believes that you know we live in a white supremacist country wouldn't bother asking the white supremacists for things so that's how you know they're lying it's just like the feminists if the mm -hmm. feminists know that men will never give them equal rights then they wouldn't ask right well, so obviously or they would ask in the way other minorities had to ask which is well let me prove my worth to society first let me go mm -hmm. die in war first you know, the mm -hmm. one way in which um, he does have a point, though, is that this grift relies on a type of social scapegoating that historically has many times led to state violence. And we're looking at already calls for state action against groups of people. And it, right now they're, you know, being stated in jest, like the, the, the uh, calls in the parliament uh, in the UK after the recent, um, uh, the woman that went missing and the, the cop was arrested for her murder, uh, after her body was found, um, there were calls for a male only curfew. And it's not the first time I've heard that. And that's, that's been going on in the UK for a while. Um, I've heard it here in the United States. I've heard, you know, and it starts out in jest, you know, calls for, uh, regulating men's bodies because feminists claim that uh, opposition to abortion is regulation of women's bodies. Uh, they don't acknowledge that there's another body involved there. Um, so you have these things going on where we're sort of in that gray area between this is not going to turn into state violence and this very well could evolve into state violence. And there are a lot of little signs and some bigger signs happening that that pathway is very much a real possibility. Uh, so I can understand why um, any individual might look at this as, you know, we do have to counteract these narratives specifically, um, even though we know it's a grift. It's just that what they're not getting is that they need to call out the grift and not mm -hmm. just counteract the narrative. Because uh, uh, right. that scapegoating is, in fact, dangerous. Yes. And and you're not going to get the same amount of sympathy. The fact that we are even, like, dancing around, like, kind of dancing around this to say, well, look, you know, this is a controversial topic, when all it is is white people asking people to stop being racist towards them, tells us that they're on the back foot narratively, and it's going to be a struggle. So you have to... It's fine to advocate to push back against these narratives, but like Hannah said, you also have to call out the grift that's taking place and that people are lying, they don't actually believe it, and they're benefiting tremendously. 
And obviously, I also pointed out to him that, you know, a lot of the people doing this are also white. <laughs> so, you know, this this isn't about and he knows that he recognizes it. So, yeah, you know, all in all, fair guest, decent conversation. That's all I can say to that. Yep. Well, and definitely food for thought. And that's all, you know, we're presenting it as. So this is Speaking with Nate of the White Wellbeing Outreach Team on Anti-Whiteism. Interview by Brian Martinez, Fireside Chat, number 173. I guess it's not really an interview. It's more like an extended discussion. Of yeah, course, I mean, I, that was discussion. a little bit of interviewing, but it's basically a discussion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. All right. So in uh, Fireside Chat, 173. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Honey Badger Radio. My name is Brian, and this is the Fireside Chat. And I am joined by uh, Nate. I'm just going to say Nate, if that's okay. Um, he is an advocate for white well-being, a movement of love, hope, and redemption for Western kind. He has started an all-volunteer outreach team for spreading their message online and in real life. Um, he is building bridges with and encouraging other group leaders and their communities that oppose what is commonly referred to as the mainstream narrative to volunteer their time, get together, and get their message out there as well. Every person that can be caused to question and perhaps leave behind the mainstream narrative brings us all that much closer to breaking its hold. So, so what we do is, first, we, the, the team idea was mine. And what I did is um, there, there's a few different, you know, I guess, channels online that I watch from time to time and I'll engage in the live chats and whatnot. And um, one of the things that struck me was we've got all these different channels of people talking about the ideas that they have and uh, different problems they have with modern society and whatnot. Um, but I, I'm not seeing a ton of people uh, going into, like I said, the mainstream narrative and saying, here's our idea. You know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people putting out their own videos, but then not going into other people's. And if they do, it's like that one person who went into your videos and said, hey, you're missing the point. And like, I don't think that's very effective, right? I don't, I don't think that the person going in by themselves and saying, hey, you're sure. missing the point is a good way to go. You know, like we, we want people who kind of question what's going on in the world right now to, to get their voice out there, to get other people to question what's going on in the world. And I, I thought to myself, hey, if I can get a group of people and we can go into these other spheres of influence, if, if you would, and start talking to people in their chats and whatnot and have actual conversations with people, then we can get them to kind of start to question. So we wouldn't be going into like your chat or, or something like that. We see the mainstream narrative, the mainstream news, all that kind of stuff as like a, a big pin and there's a gate and we're outside of that gate. And I would say you're outside of that gate too. Mm -hmm. And we need to find a way to get things like, you know, men's rights activism or us caring about, you know, the things like I sent you with the Los Angeles school district having, uh, you know, white school schools with a white population of 30 percent or more losing funding. Um, we need to get this kind of stuff out there, but also just people questioning the narrative. And so we by going into these chat rooms and doing this where we're kind of jumping over that gate. 
And, right. And it's it's been helpful. We've we've gotten some people to come to us, and but one of the big things is we've also gotten people uh, to start using like the words that we use. So when we go in there, we'll we started talking about the Una Party instead of Republican and Democrat. Now when we go into these chat rooms, before we've even posted, we're seeing dozens of people talking about the Una Party. That's good for us. We want them thinking in that way. Um, we've also been using anti-white instead of like Democrats are the real racist sort of, mm -hmm. you know, stuff where mm -hmm. we just say, you know, any, anybody and everybody can be anti-white. There's white people who are anti-white. Democrats and Republicans are both anti-white in certain you know, ways like anybody can be. And then anybody can also be white positive. You don't you like not everybody hates white people. And, but by saying anti-white instead of racist, um, we're kind of sidestepping the whole argument that saying Democrats are the real racist, uh, it, that that legitimizes it. When they say when they say, oh, the whole system, when the Democrats are the, the quote unquote left, say the whole system is racist. And then the Republicans go, oh, well, the Democrats are the real racist. They're just ceding that territory. They're saying, yeah, you're right. The system is racist. And so we're coming in and saying, no, it's it, it's that's that's kind of just there to demonize us. But, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but so anyway, one more quick thing I just want to mention. I'm not here at all to say, you know, the real problem is anti-whiteism. It's not anti-maleism. I'm, I'm not here to, to get into that argument at all because I think it would be foolish, one, for me to deny that there are obviously anti-male things happening all the time. It would be ridiculous for me to argue that. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I also think it would be ridiculous to argue that there aren't anti-white things happening as well. And mm -hmm. I just don't think that's an argument for us to have. What? Would you like to see that would make you feel as though, you know, my work here is done and I don't have to do this anymore? Like what would what would make you, uh, you know, what, what what's your end goal? What um, would the world what would what would America look like if it, well, if it changes at all? That's really hard to say because, you know, we're we're not in a position where we could actually really make any policy changes or anything like no, that. No, no. Yeah. So it's it's, I, diff it's I, difficult I, to hypothesize like, oh, uh, you know, in, in my ideal world, it would, and, and I don't even want to, I, because the, the way that things could change so drastically between mm -hmm. now and when like there's no longer an anti-male narrative or no longer an anti-white narrative that's pervasive, you know, the, all the changes that could happen between now and then, like it, it's ridiculous to kind of, you know, guess yeah no I, i'm like, uh, you know no yeah i i get that like i i could just say per for for my part i think that um i would like to see a society that is uh has a, a much heavier focus on liberty rather than you know uh reliance on the state because that's part of our problem is that we've yeah. made too many people that are dependent on the state and there's much less liberty and i think that that's a product of um, you know, a are that we have less masculinity, and that's in both men and women. Okay. And um, I think that uh, what we what what I would like to see is a return to that. I want more resilience. I want more anti fragility. Mm -hmm. I want more liberty. I want um, men and women to uh, you know have a healthier relationship with each other. And mm -hmm. that, for my part, I believe that that means that uh, we want 
to love and honor men, our men, a little bit more, and we want to uh, encourage our women to earn our respect a lot more. And mm. I think that that is how that was. That is an abstract, and it, yes, it's probably pie in the sky. But I know what the world I want to see looks like, and it looks like that. And I think there was probably points in history where we had that. So I don't okay. think it's completely out of our reach, but I know what it looks like. And that's basically my answer. If I would answer that question, that's what yeah. I would say. So so um, I, I would say that right now it is out of your reach. It's out of my reach, mm-hmm. too. You know, that, and so I considering that it's out of our reach, the, the goal is the only thing I can actually realistically say is I want it to actually become a possibility. Because we're at a point where it's not even a possibility right now. Like we have zero control over the mainstream narrative. Sure. So it's it's completely kind of just I'm just going to say it again, kind of ridiculous to pontificate about like, oh, here's the world that you know we need to achieve because we we have zero control over achieving it right now. So mm-hmm. my position is trying to get people to because. One, I, I think one thing that I do disagree with you on a little bit from what you mentioned much earlier is that the majority of people realize what's wrong or that the majority of people kind of kind of see the problems in our civilization. Well, they and sense I, that I, something is wrong, I think. OK, I, um, I can agree with that, yeah. but I definitely don't think they they really know what is wrong. And so I think the the only thing we can really solidly say is like we need to get the message to more people as to the different things that are wrong Mm because a lot of those people who know something's wrong they don't actually realize how things how bad things are for men uh they or for our civilization they don't realize how bad things are for you know anybody so they except for what they're told they're told things are this bad for women and they believe it so they know something's wrong, but they they don't realize the finer points of it. And that's where, like, you know, channels like yours where you talk about these things and then an outreach team like mine where we go into the other world and say, hey, here's what's happening. That That's where we come in, right? We, we have to get that message out there. Now, I would agree with you. I, I would prefer a civilization um, that isn't so reliant on the government to do everything. Uh, I, I think that using the term, and this is, and, and again, I'm not telling you how you should do anything, but I do think that if we're going to win against this mainstream narrative that is ultimately mm-hmm. just anti-Western and it's just people that want power and they're just using narratives that they think are effective in order to gain that power, Um, I don't think we should use their language because I noticed Mm -hmm. that a lot of people who are white, if I ask them, what are you? They'll say, I'm just white. And I think that they, in their own way, erase their own history, right? We're we're trying to, I guess, get people to realize that it it doesn't matter how anti-white you are. It doesn't matter what flavor of white you are. We need to we need to have each other's backs. We need to have you know some some unity here, fight, opposing the anti-white narratives, not opposing mm-hmm. non-white people, not opposing any other group of people, opposing the anti-white narrative. So and, you're and I, yeah, you're, it's basically just a defense against the narrative. It's not 
like uh, you know you don't have a problem with other races like even being in like the, it's not like a, you're segregationists or anything like that right we are not segregationists um i i'm sure there are some people uh in in the community who would prefer to live in a predominantly white area um but we we would there's no way that anybody in the white well-being community would ever want a the government to force people to to leave their homes now as far as the the family thing i i i agree with you 100 that destroying the family breaking like destroying the father right the position mm-hmm. of the father in the family mm-hmm. um and, and you know get the whole idea that they give to women that you're you're not a complete woman unless you go work for some corporation instead of working for your family even yeah um, sure like that the whole destruction of the family thing definitely is a, a great way to break down a civilization um and we look at it and say well where is the majority of this family breakage um where where is the majority of the messaging saying break up your families occurring and it's majority occurring in western civilization countries it's a, it's occurring in europe it's occurring in uh north america and canada it's occurring in australia it's occurring in south africa it's occurring everywhere that is majority a western civilization um sure. and and so we still see the d- the destruction of the family as ultimately an attack on western kind mm-hmm. um but I, I, I would largely agree with you that if we can fix the family unit, that would solve definitely a lot of problems that we have, a ton of them. I don't know if it would solve all of them, but it would definitely solve a lot of them. I, I well, agree with that yeah. 100%. I, I, used I, I to be would a say that. Fan of Jesse Lee Peterson, man. That guy's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, I would. I had him on the show before. I, be, I believe if you can fix that, then everything else falls into place. Even in the areas where there will still be issues, you will have such an incredibly strong civilization. It will be able to withstand it. We're back again and Brian's still in the hot seat. So tell us about the news of the week and uh, what the items were and why you chose them. Okay, so for the news stories, uh, first off, we had to talk a little bit about the trial of Derek Chauvin, which is the uh, police officer that's being, um, I guess, uh, there is a trial for murder, the murder of George Floyd, uh, which is the the gentleman in Minneapolis uh, that died of heart, I believe, heart complications and other issues. Um, And because the trial is beginning, we had to talk about what the implications are and what the data or the facts around the case are as it stands and why this is important, because there seems to be a pretty good chance that Derek Chauvin will not be found guilty of what the state is attempting to charge him with. And if that is the case, then we may see more rioting and violence. Um, And we had to warn against that. The other thing was, uh, on the lighter news, we have the story of the super straight uh, TikTok video that went viral and drove people crazy. And it was just this sort of funny hashtag where people who are heterosexual and don't have an interest in dating or sleeping with trans people, even if those trans people are of the sex that they normally would be attracted to, have decided they're going to call themselves super straight. Uh, because 
trans activist groups are essentially saying that they have to sleep with, they should not discriminate against trans people when it comes to dating. It's a weird conversation that I think could only exist on the internet. Um, but we thought it was a funny story what? anyway. And what was that? Well, how can anybody say that you... Okay, so you're saying that trans people have a have a legal right to other people's bodies. So I just had to That's, get into that. Uh, yeah, well, basically, it's it's not a legal right, but they're basically saying that... Uh, and they've been saying this for a while. Ever since the trans... And I'm again, I'm going to be very specific. I'm not talking about regular trans people. Because I think regular trans people understand the struggles that come with being a trans person and dating. I'm talking about trans activists that believe that there there should not be any discrimination against trans men or trans women when it comes to dating and that people who are attracted to men, for example, should also be willing to date trans men even if trans men are not equipped the same way um, and they're not allowed to have preferences because that's transphobic. And okay. so, yes, go ahead. They're creating a moral hierarchy in which you lose aspects of your humanity and start to be seen as a social criminal because you refuse to have sex with someone. Uh, what what do they say about incel entitlement here? <laughs> I know. Like, it's, what? it's wild, right? It's absolutely wild. This is totally inappropriate. Yeah. I can't believe I, I actually I would have to say that I'm a super bisexual. There you go. There are super I, bisexuals, super lesbians and super gays. So I actually saw Blair right. White uh, come out and call this uh, very rapey. Um, watched a video of hers on this topic today, and uh, she really, really lambasted the uh, the people criticizing this super straight hashtag and everything. She's like, it started out as a joke and you made it real, um, but but she did call the the whole idea of you know owing somebody sex because political correctness very rapey. And I thought, you know, that's that's really the best way for her to describe it. Um, but the other thing that needs to be pointed out is it's not just um, being being treated as a right. They're taking away the right of normal trans people, people who are, are, are transgender because they have gender dysphoria and, and they've gone through this experience and they're they're identifying uh, as as the opposite sex because that's how they really feel and not because it's a trend or politically correct or uh, gets them brownie points with their their compatriots or gets them an advantage some somewhere but because they genuinely are going through something hard um, taking away their right to know that when someone wants to sleep with them it's because they're attracted to them and they they like them and they care about them and they're interested in them or at the very least they think they're hot and uh, and not mm -hmm. because it gets them politically correct brownie points yeah, this is why i loathe political lesbians it's like do you with political lesbians i'm like looking at them like i don't i can't tell if you hate men more or women more because you, yeah right you're, you're you're going into relationships with women and the reason why you're in a relationship with women is politics so you mm -hmm. are actually taking someone's life, parts of someone's life from them by having them waste the, their life on you. That, and that you're doing that to women, other women. You're yeah. wasting, you're, you're getting them into a situation where they are wasting their life on you. Because I, there is no way that a political lesbian can truly love another woman. 
you know, imagine picking people up in a in a in a club or something like, oh, hey, I don't love you at all, but why don't you make yourself as emotionally vulnerable to me as humanly possible anyway? Uh, or I'm not even attracted to you, but I yeah. consider having sex with you to be a political act of hatred towards another group of people. Like, why don't you just call yourselves misanthropes? You know, just just wear a particular uniform, and the rest of us can avoid you. Anyway, what was yeah. what? <laughs> I think we I think we talked uh, at length on this a bit, particular topic. Uh, length on that one, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, just really briefly, the other ones. Um, we also have a story of a of a interview with a former writer for Cosmopolitan who basically admits to something we already knew is that the Cosmopolitan writers and journalists are basically were there to push uh, feminism as an agenda and also um, you know they wanted to essentially uh, help the sexual revolution hijack the women's movement. Um, ironically, the woman who wrote for Cosmo, who was advocating that women become career ladies and, and, you know, forget about family and raising children, uh, got married and raised children. So <laughs> just, uh, I thought that was just a funny story. And we also have, um, a story about, uh, the, the decline in human reproduction or reproductive ability and where that might be coming from. There's a number of factors like plastics and our food and, you know, um, things like that. And what, uh, well, just letting people know, you know, if they don't, um, want, if they, if they want a future and they want family, they may, they're going to have to look at their things in their sort of day-to-day life, their health, like how they eat and where they get their food and things like this. Um, and then lastly, we have a, a story that I don't know why it surprised anyone, um, because this, this has actually been talked about for some time now, a New York columnist, is trying to cancel Pepe Le Pew because he promotes rape culture. And he actually got, they actually removed the character from the sequel to Space Jam because they listened to this guy. And uh, we knew this, but but we knew this because I remember years ago, there were calls to get rid of Pepe Le Pew. It's just that at the time, we thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> and here we are. So, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. But the, the joke is that... It's a it's a cross species thing because this, when the when the cat looks like a skunk, he's all over her. But when mm-hmm. she looks like a cat, she's all over him. Yes, yes, that's right. So and the main reason, species, it, yeah, it, the main reason why, being. yeah, it's like the and the main reason why she's not attracted to him is because he smells like a skunk, and then it, it sometimes the sometimes the smell goes away because he falls into some perfume or something. And then she becomes the cat becomes attracted. So yes, it's but like again, pointing out the logic would, of these things is meaningless. I so thought it would be you know, considered an insult against the French. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, that that would. Well, he also wanted he to get was actually modeled after a particular actor. Yeah, he wanted to cancel Speedy Gonzalez as well, but um, that didn't work out uh, because um, Mexicans everywhere uh, love Speedy Gonzalez. So, you know, that, that that guy didn't get canceled. Plus, I don't know how um, the Space Jam basketball team could possibly win without Speedy Gonzalez on their side. So they kind of need him for the plot. But yeah, um, I'm just I'm just amazed bit, that they didn't pick up on the fact that it's just cross species. It's just a cross yeah, species joke. Pepe Le Pew. Oh. Pepe Le Pew was not a statement on anything. He wasn't a gender statement. He wasn't a racial statement. He wasn't anything. He was a parody 
of an actor um, whose who's acting style, like he was just an over-the-top, exaggerated parody of this this one actor, and I can't think of the actor's name, but he had that same style of speech, and he was all like romantic and everything. Tom and Jerry had a um, a momentary parody of the same actor in uh, an episode where uh, Tom was trying to woo the the pretty white lady Kitty and uh, sang to her, and then at one point he goes kissing up her arm. And uh, is speaking sweet nothings to her. This was like popular to parody this guy. Um, But nobody from today would know that. They wouldn't remember that because they didn't watch those old movies. They didn't grow up watching them with their parents probably either or their grandparents. And uh, so they just look at it and they see what they want to see. And what it really ends up doing is saying a lot about the people trying to cancel the character but absolutely nothing about the people who created the character or the character himself. They're seeing themselves in him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, th- I thought that when you, when you look at the whole thing, right, it doesn't the fact that when she, he becomes her species, like he gets dumped in perfume and then looks like a cat, and she's like, oh my god, I have to get a piece of that, doesn't that sort of neutralize it? Because then it becomes, it's, I mean, they would have, they would, they would enjoy each other's company if only they were the same species. Yeah. Well, the, the gag there is he thinks the behavior is entirely appropriate until the tables are turned and then he doesn't like it anymore. But he only doesn't like it because he no longer recognizes her as a skunk. Right, when right. That, inevitably what happens is the, the white, he doesn't recognize her. He's just like, madam, you know. Like yeah, it's because she doesn't look like a skunk anymore, right? So mm-hmm. the 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 thing is that if I wonder if they ever did this, if they got over their their cross species situation, they would be perfectly happy with each other, which I'm guessing would be end up in an X rated furry cartoon. That's the that's part of the joke, and I think that's you know that that turnabout at the end isn't really about showing. That he doesn't like the behavior. Well, I guess he doesn't like the behavior. No. Um, well, yeah, but it's also yeah. showing that he she would be interested in him if he was the same species, because nothing else has changed and <laughs> didn't stink. Yep. All right, so is that it? <laughs> Pepe the the problematic. That's, that's it. Yes, yeah, Pepe it. the problematic. Yes. Okay, so this is Derek Chauvin's trial coming out as super straight. Pepe the problematic. Uh, with Brian Martinez, Hannah Wallen, Mike J, and Dr. Rana Merkham. HBR News, number 297. This is HBR News, number 297. Derek Chauvin's trial coming out as super straight. And Pepe Le Problematic, where we reflect on the stories of the week and give it the badger treatment. Hello and welcome to Honey Badger Radio. I hope you guys are doing well this week and that you are laughing at all of this craziness so that it does not consume you and drive you crazy. I am the super straight president-elect Brian and I am joined by, as always, my austere patriarchs whose sexual orientation I will not presume and our handmaiden who can do whatever she wants because it's International Women's Month or whatever the fuck, Hannah, Mike J, and Dr. Ranamakam. 
And by the way, uh, happy Women's History Month and belated International Women's Day, which was yesterday. And um, that reminds me, I just want to let you guys know we have a new sponsor that we're excited to bring forward. Uh, it's Burger King UK, who has um, who has made a great post uh, that I think that we can all get behind. And uh, <laughs> I just wanted to uh, share this exciting news. Uh, Burger King. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They actually took it back. They're no longer with us. Okay, we lost it. We had it and then we lost it just as quickly as we got it. So that's all right. Back to square one. Uh, the murder trial for George Floyd was delayed after the first day of jury selection. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin faces a charge of second degree murder and manslaughter for George Floyd's death. During a mid-morning recess, the prosecution filed a motion with the Court of Appeals to stop the trial from proceeding until the district court regains full jurisdiction over the case. The motion from the prosecution seeks a delay of the proceedings until the issue of a third-degree murder charge is settled to prevent any potential issues with the integrity of the case. The Minnesota Court of Appeals ruled on Friday that Judge Peter Cahill, I hope I'm saying that correctly, must reconsider reinstating the third-degree murder charge against Chauvin. Cahill denied the state's motion to reinstate the third-degree murder charge, standing by his decision to dismiss the charge. However, the Court of Appeals ruled Cahill made a mistake. Barricades and barbed wire are in place around the Hennepin County Government Center, where the trial is supposed to take place, and Minneapolis City Hall. Security measures will also be going up around other city infrastructure, such as the police precinct buildings. Uh, in addition, there's some additional things that I just learned today. Um, in Minneapolis, where this is happening, there appears to be another autonomous zone forming. I think they're calling it the George Floyd Autonomous Zone. And there are thousands of angry BLM supporters um, and their, I guess, allies that are, uh, you know, in the area, sort of like protesting and whatnot. Um, and they're essentially saying that if they don't get the justice that they desire, they're going to burn everything down. The term super straight has blown up on the Internet in the past week. Uh, the term, if I believe this is correct, is uh, basically being a parody of the other non-traditional sexual orientations like uh, demisexual and pansexual and all those other fun made up terms. Uh, means the individual is not only is only attracted to biological members of the opposite sex. Well, the term had existed previously, it had nowhere near the notoriety it does now. The reemergence of the term is in part due to TikTok creators going viral by announcing that they are, in fact, super straight. The term really caught fire when it started trending on Twitter, where snowflakes discovered it and were immediately triggered by it as an outgroup had finally learned how to play their game. Some of the initial TikTok creators have faced harassment online with some even receiving death threats. Mm -hmm. Death threats. You know, yeah. Go ahead, Mike. You know, it's super gay and super bi are also things. Presumably super trans is also a thing in this model. So it sounds to me like people are just taking back the word super. I'm super. <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> 
A former writer for Cosmopolitan, Sue Ellen Broder, or Browder, has written a book titled Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement. In the memoir, she reveals that while she promoted feminist lies through her career, she wasn't always a true believer. As the website Evie explains at Cosmopolitan Browder's job, so at Cosmopolitan, her job, was to sell the idea that for a woman to be fulfilled in life, she has to one, work hard, two, take the pill or use some other contraceptive, and three, if the contraceptive failed, get an abortion, and that women should pursue sex without attachment, just like men. Browder reveals that she had a happy childhood and a loving family. It was her mother's love of homemaking and women's magazines like Red Book, Good Housekeeping, McCall's, Better Homes and Gardens, Glamour, Vogue, and Reader's Digest that inspired her to pursue a journalism um, to pursue journalism to be a magazine writer. She married her college sweetheart who shared her dream of becoming a writer. Her first job as a staff reporter on the women's section of the South Bay Daily Breeze, a mid-sized newspaper, taught her there is no such thing as ethics in journalism. As cited by Evie, quote, I first learned lying is a lot easier than telling the truth, and some journalists do it routinely. Lying means you can skip the hard legwork of tracking down reliable sources, so-called real people, who are willing to talk and go on the record. Lying means that you can meet tight deadlines with less hassle. Lying means you don't even have to try and get your facts straight because you made most of them up. End quote. After wow. she was, yes, this like just comes I, right as out. Someone who is, uh, a, <laughs> let's say, journalist adjacent in in his career path. This makes me livid. <laughs> I'm not finished yet. Um, after she was fired from the newspaper for getting pregnant, Browder turned to feminism, following femme saints such as Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem for their activism to stop discrimination of women in the workplace in the 60s. Feminists like Betty Friedan went beyond this, calling for complete female freedom from the shackles of marriage and domestic life. So after giving birth, Browder applied for a job at Cosmopolitan magazine, probably the most popular women's magazine in the world carefully omitting the fact that she had a baby during the interview process. The magazine's message was, after all, was for single women. Quote, hard work and sex will set you free as long as you don't have children, end quote. Even though Helen Gurley Brown, owner of Cosmo, was married herself. Browder explains that she did eventually buy into the lie herself when she was pregnant a third time in a period of economic hardship she had an abortion. She says she has regretted that decision ever since. She also wants women to know about all the women who bought into the lie and died sick from abortion complications or the pill, alone from their years pursuing of, uh, of pursuit of meaningless sex, and childless from the years of ignoring the call of motherhood and their maternal instincts. She realized how she had never been happier when than when she was a mother taking care of her children and she reflected on how much her husband meant to her so uh essentially just just to sum up uh this is a person who used to write for cosmo and essentially her and so many others of that of these journalists um they were basically using this to push 
feminist ideas. And I know that this is not surprising to us, but it is interesting that they were so, this woman is so overt in her explanation of what the motivation was. Shanna Swan, PhD, an environmental and reproductive epidemiologist was part of a meta-regression analysis of 185 studies involving about 45,000 healthy men published in 2017. The studies ranged over the past four decades, showing that sperm counts among men in Western countries had dropped by more than 50%. While Swan says that alcohol use, smoking, body weight, and a lack of exercise contribute to the decline, in her new book entitled Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race, Swan outlines most of the damage is actually from exposure to common chemicals. These so-called endocrine disrupting chemicals don't only affect sperm count. In girls, exposure to such chemicals has been linked to earlier onset of puberty, and women are experiencing a decline in egg quality. One class of chemicals are the phthalates, 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 I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, which phthalates, have a, yeah. Th yeah, phthalates, that's what I thought, which have a potential to lower testosterone. Quote, several of them make plastics soft and flexible. Others have the ability to promote absorption and retention. They're put in personal care products. For instance, they help hand lotion go through your skin and they help the smell get into your nose. They also help the pesticides get to the plant. End quote. They're added to many products and people can be exposed through food as they are often used in packaging and processing. Another group is the bi, uh, bisphenols, bis, bisphenols, whatever. Shoot, now that one I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, which act on estrogen. Quote, they make I think plastics. That's actually, I think the S is silent. I think it's just biphenols. Yeah, maybe it's biphenols. Uh, they make plastics hard. They're found in baby bottles, drinking water bottles, and other products. The most familiar is BPA, but there are substitutes like BPS, BPF, and so on, end quote. Others include pesticides, which can be hormonally active, like DDT, and more recently, Roundup, which I'm sure you guys have heard a lot about if you've looked into uh, Monsanto. Flame retardants and PFAs, such as Teflon and water-resistant sprays, like those that are used for raincoats. Although Swan's analysis cannot control for many other factors, like men and women waiting until later to have children, and how much reproductive decline is due to other lifestyle factors, she believes the impact of these chemicals is substantial. In fact, Swan makes the provocative claim that humans may not have the ability to reproduce naturally for much longer in her book. Charles M. Blow, the appropriately named columnist <laughs> from the New York Times, has argued that cartoon character Pepe Le Pew perpetuated a rape culture and uh, probably should be canceled. Because uh, I guess we've ran out of real problems to discuss. Uh, quote, As a child, I was led to believe that blackness was inferior, and I was not alone. The black society into which I was born was riddled with these beliefs. It happened for children the most. It happened for children in the most inconspicuous of ways. It was relayed through toys and dolls, cartoons and children's shows, fairy tales and children's books, end quote. Blow states telling us more about his damage than anything else. 
he proceeds to point out the trouble he has in telling fiction apart from reality, stating, quote, Some of the first cartoons I can remember include Caleb Hugh, who normalized rape culture, Speedy <laughs> Gonzalez, whose friends helped popularize the corrosive stereotype of the drunk and lethargic Mexicans, and Mammy Two-Shoes, a heavyset black maid who spoke in a heavy accent, end quote. The piece was lambasted by regular people, uh, which Blow got angry at on Twitter, stating, quote, uh, RW, which I believe means right wing, uh, blogs are mad BC, which, uh, again, I'm going to guess means because, because pesky Twitter word limits. Uh, I said Pepe Le Pew added to rape culture. Let's see. One, he grabs, kisses a girl, stranger, repeatedly without consent and against her will. Two, she struggles mightily to get away from him, but he won't release her. Three, he locks a door to prevent her from escaping. This helped teach boys that no didn't really mean no, <laughs> that it was a part of the game, okay. the starting line of a power struggle. It taught overcoming a woman's strenuous, even physical objections was normal, adorable, funny. They didn't <laughs> even give the woman the ability to speak. End quote. It's a cat! It's she was a cat! <laughs> okay, <laughs> go, go, go. Just finish, Mike. I'm sorry. Finish. I, I... Twitter user at Beyond Rees Doubt stated in response, quote, By the way, I'm assuming Charles Blow has come out against every rapper ever, right? Because if you think Pepe Le Pew is a problem, oh boy, go listen to the music I grew up on, end quote. <laughs> And uh, Twitter user at uh, A-C-T Bridget stated very briefly, uh, very to the point, quote, you just described Joe Biden, end quote. <laughs> uh, currently no word from Warner Brothers or whoever owns the rights for Pepe Le Pew if all media of him will suddenly be pulled from existence. Does this guy ever watch the cartoons? <laughs> like, first of all, the, the, the whole cartoon me meme of uh, Pepe Le Pew communicated that it is not normal, not acceptable, and uh, something to be made fun of when a person acts like Pepe Le Pew. Like, obviously, this guy's clueless. You know, let's let's ridicule him. And at the end of it, of course, he becomes, you know, the, the, the tables are turned and he becomes the target of the same behavior and he doesn't like it. And we're back again back for a show of subtitled technical difficulties with the badger <laughs> yeah you you actually brought this one up didn't you or did i did i bring uh, this no to you? you you sent this to me but i don't think you watched it so no i didn't i just yeah, yeah. i gave it to you and i was like is this worth responding to so yeah um well why did you decide it was worth responding to then well actually the more i learn about this afterwards the more interesting i think it is to respond to but uh, so this video, I thought it was interesting, is basically from a popular YouTuber. I think she's got like 700,000 subs. Her name is Teal Swan. And um, it, her the video she made was entitled, What Every Woman Should Know About Men. And I decided, well, let's give this a watch and find out what she's going to say. Um, and apparently she had done a video previously entitled, What Every Man Should Know About Women. And so she wanted to do a flip on the other side. Okay, that... That doesn't sound bad. She's trying to basically like look at both sides of this. And she was more or less fair, 
although there there I think are some fundamental problems. Like one, she essentially uh, 100% agreed with the feminist movement of the 1960s, which means that she under uh, agrees with the underlying sort of central pillar of the feminist movement, which is essentially that men oppressed women all throughout history at the expense of women and to the benefit of men, which gives her a pretty low opinion of men in general if you operate under that assumption, or you're uh, one of those grifters that knows it's bullshit, but you wanna benefit from it. So um, you'll just go ahead and carry on with that narrative. But um, I thought we would respond to and give our thoughts on her perspective. And and what makes her perspective interesting is um, she is a kind of new age person. And I didn't know this, but like after the video was over, I got a bunch of private messages from Bane666, uh, who is an Australian YouTuber. He hasn't made a video in a while, but... Uh, he talks a lot about men's rights activists. He responded to videos as well. And he told me that uh, Teal Swan is part of a larger YouTube channel that's even bigger uh, that I, I cannot remember the name of. I think it's um, uh, Spirit Science. And they, they're really out there. They're, they believe that, that Jews are from outer space. And um, they have some crazy spirit ideas about time and aliens and, and parallel universes and such. And Teal Swan, her information about men and women, I guess on some level is rooted in these space Jew ideas. So I, <laughs> I think it's so absurd um, that, you know, and I'm kind of glad I found that. So uh, yeah, Teal Swan, a new age hippie, like, you know, crystals, chakras, and uh, men have oppressed women throughout all of history until very recently. So that's basically the, the video. We only got about halfway through because uh, Allison had some technical uh, implosion go yeah. on. Uh, but probably the space Jews were responsible, I, I think. Maybe they didn't want the word out. I don't know. Mm. Um, <laughs> Damn those space Jews. <laughs> and they're space But yeah, jewelry. that's basically the... And that's that's basically the that's basically the long and the short of it. Oh yeah, I I yeah, it is it is getting a little ridiculous. I, we're gonna have to keep doing it, of course, but to review people who somehow think human nature started in the '60s, it's like mm -hmm. yeah, we 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 weren't humans until the '60s. That's when we evolved the basic traits of a human society, which is. Uh, protecting and providing for women, males that preferentially protect and provide for women, uh, females throughout most of their lifetime, and are highly cooperative and paternal and um, uh, generally pretty decent, decent, you know, like they're just decent. I mean, that's that's part of being human. It's, it's the, the, the traits that we evolved well before the 60s. But of course... For some reason, human nature started in the 60s, and this makes sense to so many people. Oh. I, I wonder when human nature will have started in like the, the 22,000s, you know? We'll have, we'll have space feminists in, in, in 22,000. In the year 2525. <laughs> if human nature is still alive. <laughs> <laughs> if, if a man <laughs> still sips. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Okay, all right. Okay, so this is Teal Swan on what women should know about men, part one.
hopefully there's going to be a part two where we finish with myself and Brian Martinez. HBR debate number 47. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Honey Badger Radio. My name is Brian. I'm here with Allison. This is HBR Debate. I didn't really know what else to call it. I guess that's appropriate. We're basically going to be responding to a video by a YouTuber that is very popular, although I never heard of her. Teal Swan is her name. And apparently uh, she made, I think she makes videos about relationships. Um, I haven't looked at the channel very closely, so forgive me if I'm wrong. But yeah, anyway, so this video is from Teal Swan. It is entitled, What Every Woman Should Know About Men. And I guess she made it because she originally made a video entitled, What Every Man Should Know About Women. So it was like the same idea. Women don't currently know about men. Is it men need to feel wanted, needed, and useful. You need to make space in your life for a man to fill a place and a specific role and a specific purpose in your life. Doing this is what makes a man feel connected and committed to you. Now that I've given you the overall concept, I'm going to break it down for you. All right. Um, So that's like the central premise. The women's rights movement undeniably benefited us in several ways. All you need to do to understand this is go back before the 1960s and look at the typical relationship between men and women in that society at that time. Shocking. No, it wasn't. What happens when there's a lot of injury to anyone, that includes demographics of people, is that they tend to swing the pendulum to the complete opposite extreme, thereby creating just as much damage by doing that that was created in the opposite extreme. And this is exactly what happened with the women's rights movement. No, no, no. No, Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Okay. Already starting on the wrong foot. (laughs) Go ahead. First of all, men haven't functionally changed that much. They they haven't changed that much since the 60s and now. It's what women have expected in terms of respect that's changed. And it really hasn't changed much at all. And I realize this looking through all the feminist rhetoric, it's still about men saving women. It's still about women being weaker than men. It's still about men occupying a position of moral agency that's superior to that of women's position. Uh, they are basically just receptacles of men's moral actions. It's all of this stuff is the same. It just has different rhetoric around it. And this whole idea of equality really has nothing to do with actual equality. All it has to do with pre- is presenting women of con- as continual victims of inequality in order to present them as victims of men. And that in turn presents them as the weaker sex. All of this, tra- it's all just like p- slapping a different coat of paint onto it. Nothing has changed since the 60s. Men then wanted to save women. Men then wanted to protect women. Men then wanted a feeling of like this, this feeling of a superior feeling, but a savior feeling at the same time. So not superior as in violent or aggressive, but superior in terms of being able to save women, being able to provide use for women. Like she's saying, feeling useful. It's not, not, none of this has changed in the slightest. And I invite people who think that it has to actually look at some of the um, the etiquette videos. One in particular really sticks out in my mind. It was etiquette when it comes to officers in, I think, the Navy. And what stuck out in my mind is that 
when you were you were counseled as a Navy, as like a, a junior Navy officer, that you would always, of course, address a superior officer first, unless you were in the presence of a woman, in which case every single officer, no matter what rank he was, addressed her first. Now think about that. Is that a position of inferiority for women? If being a woman outranks every, every single rank in the military, she is to be addressed first because she is a woman. That's part of etiquette in the 50s, 60s, probably, and it comes from well before. That's been etiquette throughout most of, uh, I guess, Western society. I won't exactly comment on other societies because I'm not as familiar with them, but that's an etiquette that came from the past and was very much present in the 40, present in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You tell me that women were given or granted an inferior position. They weren't. By virtue of being a woman, you are afforded extra protection, extra deference, extra security, and extra resources. And you were only asked to relinquish those things in the case of dire emergency. So all of this is wrong. Men have not functionally changed since we evolved our particular emotional responses to, uh, to, uh, to sexuality and reproduction. That we haven't functionally changed. I mean, it's, it's, we haven't evolved into an entirely different species. Men didn't suddenly start caring about women in the 60s okay they didn't get that out of your head nothing has changed nothing it's just the words and the way we refer to the same damn dynamics has changed we've slapped a new cope of paint on an old old way of viewing the sexes what would really be a radical change would be to start to recognize women's moral agency and start to see them as having choices between bad and good rather than being receptacles of men's choices. That doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon outside of some small communities. So if you approach the topic of gender with this type of mentality, that we're all equal, that we can do it just as much as men can do it, that anything they can do, we can do, this sort of attitude, you're in fact shooting yourself right in the foot Women have the tendency to see men as narcissists, and they tend to think that this narcissism implies that men are independent. Men are not independent. They need connection and a social group, just like women do. They thrive when they fit into a social group in a symbiotic way. They need to feel useful and therefore needed and therefore wanted. In fact, their self-esteem is primarily about this, and men love to take responsibility where it serves their self-esteem to do so. Okay. Um, I, I, I will ask that, uh, about this. Well, actually, Allison, do you want to say anything to that clip? I can't hear you if you're talking. Sorry, I'm just having an issue. A furry issue. Sorry. Um, I, I, uh, well, I think everybody takes responsibility when it serves their, at least their self-esteem to do so. Otherwise, usually that's abuse. You know, do you take responsibility because it serves your self-esteem or does it just so happen that you uh, take maybe it doesn't 
Yes. yes, from taking responsibility. Like, because when you say it serves their self, when you say men particularly enjoy taking responsibility where it serves their self-esteem, it seems to suggest, and I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, that that is coming from a place of selfishness, that somehow men are doing this to boost their own ego. Um, and she does start by saying, you know, women think that men are narcissists, which is, I, I find that to be a ludicrous statement. I've I don't know, you know, if that's a thing, that's news to me. I had no idea that, you know, being, uh, uh, having a desire to be independent is narcissistic. (laughs) Men subconsciously define their worth based on the reflection they get about what they do for others. The message that women are giving to men nowadays is the exact opposite of this. Women mistake a man having a real place and purpose in their lives as a slippery slope into powerless dependence. Women mistake a man opening doors for them as an insult about their capability. Women mistake male leadership for control. And because of this, instead of making space for a man in their lives, women continually remind them that they are not needed. Yes, and why would they do this? Like, suddenly. Where would that idea come from? Where would that notion come from? Maybe the notion that it's feminism that makes men care about women. That means that by definition, women or sorry, men are untrustworthy mm-hmm. unless government bodies have control over their behavior. Because that's where it, feminism is going. Exactly. And that and that assumption that you made, Teal Swan, about that, you know, if it weren't for feminism, men would be treating women like chattel to this day, tells women including yourself that on some level men want that back and the only thing that's keeping them from doing it is a movement that showed up in the 60s and told them that wasn't okay but that doesn't seem to be enough right so you have to be ever vigilant against men trying to control you again which is why women are suspicious of men who are trying to be nice to them it's like what you're defending created the problem. And it was never necessary. When anyone gets put into a lose-lose, they tend to become rebellious. They try to find some third option where they can gain some kind of power. Now, the way that men go about doing this is by throwing up their hands. The attitude that men have when we put them in this lose-lose is, all right, fine, do it all yourself then. Let's see how well it goes for you. Potentially the best example of this behavior can be seen by the character Richard in the movie Blue Lagoon. It is this dynamic that's led to the burnout that women experience today. In the post-feminist era, they now have to do and be all things to all people. So are women victims of feminism now because they have to do and be everything for all people? I I don't think that that's the case. I think that um, women want to feel like they want to essentially avoid judgment, negative judgment specifically. And in the most, in the surface level, uh, feminism makes them feel, oh, Allison dropped out of the call. On the surface level, feminism makes them feel as though um, they should not be judged. And, and because women operate in the social arena, I, I think this is exactly what it is. They, they, the, the stuff that they find appealing about it on the surface level is they get to avoid negative judgment. And they think that this negative judgment comes from society or the patriarchy, but it's really just coming from other women. And that's what they're trying to avoid. All right, we're back. Hannah, 
finish your life and death struggle with the mute button and start talking because it's your turn to go and tell us about the show that you did on Thursday last week. And boy, can you hear me now? <laughs> yes. Okay. Finally... All right. All right. Uh, we did. We went through the, the rest of that presentation on masculinities and COVID-19. So our, our title this week was more toxic feminism from the report on masculinities and COVID-19. And it was as bad as it sounded like it was going to be. Um, you know, obviously everything men do is wrong and everything women do is perfect. And anything that uh, men do differently than women, it must be an attack on women and interferes with women or it's damaging to men or it's damaging to children. And there must be a state funded effort by feminists to fix it. And there's where the grift comes in. And, uh, of course, now we, we're not going to go through and uh, listen to the rest of the, uh, the videos. Uh, there were four presentations in that meeting. And that first one sort of lays the groundwork for here's how we, we uh, justify our grift. And, and it basically just was a repetition of the watered-down... Uh, toxic masculinity narrative. And when I say watered down, what I mean is this. The toxic masculinity narrative, as created by Robert Connell, who later became Rayowen Connell after coming out as trans, um, that narrative actually came from Andrea Dworkin. There is nothing that Robert Connell said about masculine norms that didn't come straight out of Andrea Dworkin's mouth. Andrea Dworkin is such an embarrassing, man-hating rad femme that feminists will deny she ever existed, deny she was ever a feminist, deny she's representative of feminism, but they'll quote and cite that, that toxic masculinity narrative up one side and down the other, and they will pretend that by citing that, they're being compassionate toward men. What they're actually doing is promoting a negative stereotype of men and uh, promote using using promotion of a stereotype to demonize men for any ruggedness they have, any meritocracy that they exhibit, um, any independence that they exhibit, any ingenuity that they exhibit that is not done directly in service to women. And uh, so there you 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 listen to the um, the, the discussion that we have and uh, the opening video for that discussion, you'll find that as we discussed the previous week, that scapegoating is, is taking place and uh, we're well into a level of such scapegoating that either um, it's going to be used to justify a massive grift and state interference with the lives of, of men and uh, men in general, really, but in particular, uh, cis, straight, white males. Um, and it, or it'll be used to justify violence. And so it's, it's definitely something that needs paid attention to. And so we, uh, we examined it. Mm. Did you get to the end? Or we got all the way you... to the end. Yep. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to add that although... This is not the, the 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 necessarily the primary target or even the the primary fallout. Masculine women also get 
marginalized by this narrative as well. Oh, they absolutely do. Um, and it, 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 even women who are mostly feminine but have some uh, some of the more meritocratic masculine tendencies, for instance, personal accountability, um, feminists hate that. And, and personal accountability is targeted by the narrative that is promoted in the video that we're criticizing. And uh, so you end up with this situation where if, if you're the, the breadwinner of your family, for instance, and you've been laid off and it's hard on you, you're blamed for it. Uh, and I think that's very damaging. Yes, indeed. So this is more toxic feminism from the report on masculinities and COVID-19 with Hannah Wallen, Deborah Pawnee. 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 One day, one day. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Deborah Pawnee and Lauren Brooks. There we HBO go. Talks. Actually, um, nope. Lauren, Lauren was unable to be with us. Um, it was just me and Deborah, and we oh, still okay. went long. Oh well, I'm glad I wasn't there too. <laughs> yeah, would have gone even longer. It would have been. There was a lot to talk about. You'd have to have a new word for the length of the of the of the cylindrical meat substance that you created. Super sausage. The, yeah, it'd be the super sausage. So this is HBR Talk 171, but this one isn't a super sausage. It's just a regular sausage. Feminists have never had a favorable outlook on masculinity. From the 19th century, they viewed men through the same set of lenses. The presumption of malice or contempt as the motive behind all men's choices. The presumption of apathy or callousness as men's primary level of sensibility or insight and the presumption of dysfunction as the primary characteristic of men's responses to their environment and their social experiences. If we lived in a society built by the men feminists described, we'd all be dead. Early feminist writings rely on blaming all of society's ills on the condition of men being in charge, while ignoring social standards that made them responsible for, and to, women. That garbage is what 20th century feminists fleshed out and labeled patriarchy theory, despite a lack of any scientific validation that would merit calling it anything more than a hypothesis. The patriarchy conjecture relies on its own set of lenses. Feminists call positions of responsibility and the related expectations of agency power because such positions were mostly held by men while ignoring the fact that social influence strong enough to compel choices made by people in positions of responsibility is also power, because that power is held mostly by women. It's much harder to write a victim narrative around gender differences in choice of what kind of power to wield and how it is wielded than it is to write one around one sex being actually powerless, so they had to define power to exclude women's preferred uses of it. When discussing historical gender roles, they view women only as controlled victims of social standards they've influenced, while viewing men only as culpable for them and beneficiaries of them. In discussing standards they consider unfair to women, they ignore how men's responsibilities shape those standards, as well as the prevailing characteristics that would historically be attributed to mature adult masculinity. They cannot grasp how a tool for meeting one's responsibilities, like toughness when one's capacity to work is hindered by suffering, could be beneficial to the individual and community despite its ability to also be taken too far. They are unable or unwilling to recognize that any feminist-approved female behaviors could also be taken too far. 
Using those methods of selective focus, 20th century feminist academic Raywin Connell created the terminology and rhetoric of the toxic masculinity narrative. Connell's 1985 paper, Theorizing Gender, laid the groundwork for labeling dysfunctional behavior among men and boys gender norms and attributing it to neutral standards of maturity, like stoicism or ruggedness. Its text reads like a rewording of everything memory hold radical feminist Andrea Dworkin liked to say about men and masculinity, pushed through a filter of Marx's theories on cultural hegemony. Today's feminists rely on Connell's watered-down, man-hating Dworkinisms to excuse imposing their own gender stereotypes on men and boys, just so that they can claim the entire male population is tainted with social dysfunction for which feminist ideologues hold the cure. Gender studies professors have made entire careers out of this. A lot of academic writing on the topic traces back to Connell's Dworkinisms, often citing Connell but rarely ever mentioning Dworkin. Every time men or boys face a hardship, have a need, or express any kind of self-interest, feminist writing has a disparaging answer for them. Hundreds of young disciples have swallowed it without question and are waiting to vomit it at them from every angle. None of them are interested in actually doing anything to help. Many of them probably don't even know the origins of their claims, only that they are the accepted politically correct view of masculinity in their chosen academic or professional fields. They know such claims sell books to young feminists, that they are useful justifications for the creation of programs and employment positions that make them money. That is all they need to know to become die-hard disciples of the church of what's wrong with men now. Remember our discussion last week about dehumanization and state violence? As we continue trudging through the mud flung by feminists trying to gender the COVID-19 crisis, listen for that dehumanization in the narrative that video spins. What purpose would a group of ideologues have for tearing down the characteristics of adult maturity upon which our civilization was built? What would be the point? of blaming victims of social stereotyping for the hardship imposed on them by common social attitudes. How is it helpful for community leaders to use the pandemic as a means of escalating tensions and animosity between the sexes rather than as a means of inspiring teamwork and mutual consideration? How naked does the onslaught of anti-male denigration have to become before we're allowed to call it hate? How many times do I need to ask? Have you had enough? It's made me feel quite sick, actually, because I, I put a tweet out earlier today um, saying exactly what I was feeling. I was desperately hoping that Sarah would be found well, if not safe. I was desperately, I'd, I'd spoken to my kids about it because it had been on the car and on the news in the car and yeah. all that kind of stuff and um, various different conversations. And I was desperate. And I felt when I heard that news this morning that they'd arrested someone and it's not just for kidnap, it's for murder and they'd found human remains. Like most normal people, my heart cracked a bit and my you know just stomach sank all that kind of stuff so i put this thing on saying my heart goes out to all of sarah's family friends and, and loved ones i can't imagine the pain it's not verbatim but it was along those lines i can't imagine the pain of losing 
your little girl, your friend, your loved one, your partner, you know. Yeah. However, the fools that are now saying, you know, oh, men need a curfew. Can you also consider that men includes her father and her partner? Yeah. The people who, saying, if they had been present, they would have protected her. Yeah, but also these... these how how are they going to feel? They're in yeah. abstract hell. Well, you, you, you know, you, I can give you a little taste of that. I can't tell you exactly how they feel, but someone I admire greatly, who you know, I've I've sat and had drinks with, and um, worked with on on uh, basically discussing men's issues and and um, you know, sort of fleshing out my own um, observations and everything on men's issues. You know, I didn't get to spend very much time with Mark Angelucci, and now I never will because he was murdered mm. last year. Yeah. And um, to see feminists latch on to that murder and try to mm. use it against men and against the, the people that he there's dedicated a, his a whole life to support. About it. it. Yeah, it was, it was sickening, and it was very angering. And it was it was painful to watch, and that's just for somebody who was uh, who was friends, but not close friends. You know, not somebody who could claim to have um, a lot, has spent a lot of time with the the victim. And I can't imagine, you know, like Harry Crouch was his best friend, and there were so many MRAs that had actually spent countless hours working with them. Um, and, and that it must have been gut-wrenching every time they had to see somebody try to exploit his death against the people that he, he spent his lifetime trying to support. And that's just in terms of, you know, one, one person, and I can't imagine his family must have felt the same way. And if it angered me as someone who was sort of on the satellite edge of his social circle, you know, it had to have really galled everybody that was very close to him. It had to be very painful. And I can't imagine if it was a family member. You know, I, I um, recently lost my mother. And in my hometown where I grew up, she was a politically controversial person. And the vast, overwhelming majority of people who have, uh, you know, spoken to me since then... Uh, have been very kind and supportive and, and everything like you normally would be after somebody's death. But there's a few jerks who will say, well, good riddance to bad rubbish about somebody because uh, they know that they can't hurt that person anymore, but they can hurt their remaining family members. And people like that feel like they're getting something over on other people by behaving that way. But all they're really doing is telling you how ugly and dark and uh, bigoted and cruel they are on the inside. And I don't really think any differently of the feminists who hashtag not all men and try to spread collective guilt among an entire gender for the actions of one individual. I mean, and I've brought up to a few of them for that. I've brought up China Arnold, a local woman here from the Dayton area who was... Uh, given a life sentence a few years ago 
uh, for having... She, she literally microwaved her baby. Like, she put her baby in the microwave, turned the microwave on, and cooked the baby to death. And then her excuse when, the, when arrested was that she was too drunk to have done that, and she tried to blame, I think, a six-year-old child for having done it, uh, where, you know, there were, there were witnesses, um, and there was, there was evidence, there was physical evidence that, that linked her. She had been the person that, that did it, but she was going to foist it off on her six-year-old son. And uh, that, like here, you know, that was what it took here to actually get women to condemn another woman's actions. But would we, would we spread that out to all mothers? Would we say, well, you know, you can't trust women to take care of their children? Because you know, two-thirds, approximately two-thirds to three-quarters of parents who, who uh, alone, like kill one, one, one parent killing a child, um, is uh, that's the mother, like two thirds to uh, three quarters, depending on which year you look at. And uh, yes, Michael Keller, y y that's you heard right. Um, there, she's not the only woman who has been uh, arrested for that. There's another woman uh, from California who got the death penalty for the same crime. Um, there's there's uh, been mothers and one grandmother who put babies or little kids in conventional ovens and, and killed them that way. Uh, one sent the video to the father. Uh, so, I mean, there's there have been women who have committed horrendous crimes, but we don't believe that all mothers are like that. Parents who kill their children are a tiny, tiny minority among parents. Parents who abuse their children are a small minority among, among uh, parents. And uh, even though the majority of that tiny minority is women, uh, it's still a tiny minority of mothers. So we look at that, we can compare that with men. And it, yeah, if we say, well, men who, uh, you know, men who kill women who are just walking down the street, that's horrible, horrible crime, horrible thing to do. There's something very wrong with that man. But it doesn't mean there's something very wrong with all men. And if there had been an ordinary average man, any ordinary average man standing in that area, and he had seen another man trying to kidnap and, and potentially murder a woman, most of the time those men will step in and try to protect that woman because they feel obligated and they care about their fellow human beings. A lot of times women will just call the cops because they feel powerless to help. They don't think they're strong enough. Um, you know, but uh, men don't think about that necessarily. And it's, um, they, they're, they'll be very self-sacrificing in that situation. It's just, it's galling to watch feminists try to use a death like that to condemn all men as violent sociopaths or apathetic sociopaths who just allow the worst among them to do horrible things to women and do nothing about it. And this is the reason that I, I, I coined the phrase accountability gap. We keep hearing yeah. <laughs> about this so-called wage gap. And in, in um, there have been several reports that came out and debunked the wage gap myth. 
And then in 2009, the CONSAD report, which was a study of 50 different uh, economic studies into this so-called wage gap, uh, it, it just blew it out of the water. It, mm -hmm. it closed the lid on it, as far as I'm concerned, pretty much forever, that it demonstrated that the gap is an earnings gap, not a wage gap. And it mm. is caused by women working different types of jobs than men. For instance, you don't see women getting into helicopters to fly some guy over a power line to fix the power line. And you don't see them being the guy fixing that power line. That's always men doing that job. You don't see very many women climbing to the top yeah. of radio towers to change the light bulb. Um, you don't see them in, wading through the sewer to break up fatbergs. You know, mm. there's a lot of things that you have to pay extra money to get people to do because they're dangerous, dirty, dismal, you know, ugly jobs, boring sometimes, um, and and men end up doing those jobs. And, uh, mm. you know, think hazard pay is part of the wage gap. There's a whole bunch of stuff, right? And the first thing feminists did was come out of that with, well, but my traditional roles and unpaid labor and their unpaid labor is a description of things they do for themselves and their families at home that they would be doing for the most part if they lived alone with their cats. Yes, I've said that before that this is you, you've still you've still got to hoover the house. You've right. still got to cook your own food. You've still got to do these things. And these are supposedly for people that you love part of normal care and nurturing and family life and okay? that's and if women, you set women a standard make the choice to yes. have a family to marry a man or have sex with a man and have children and then not marry that man and take you know full responsibility or you know what they think is full it responsibility because they don't take financial this... responsibility but it's just this idea that you're removing agency or these poor women they had a family and now they've got all this unpaid labor and emotional labor and this labor and mm -hmm. that labor jesus and, h and men are accountable for all of those choices but women are not yeah. and they accountability made them do gap. it it was oh, oh no that reminds me going back just to that that thread today um i think i told you that someone jumped on um a trainee clinical psychologist and i was uh, essentially said that there's uh, talk, uh masculinity in its very essence is toxic and men have to struggle to maintain to control their toxicity <laughs> i honestly yeah. i i have to laugh because i was absolutely rageful at the time but I, it was essentially saying like men do all the bad stuff in life and i said well that's that's do you, do you actually believe that do you not think that women can do bad things and he came back and said yeah women can do bad things but only because bad men make them do it who made who made china arnold put her baby in the microwave yeah, yeah, I mean, honestly i've i've heard this before but all i think to myself is that's really offending me yeah. because you've taken away my agency you cannot lay all the bad things that women do onto men and then allow them and i think i put something quite trite out there and said uh sorry <laughs> i didn't realize that to do with me all the bad stuff is is men i'm just off to polish my <laughs> female halo yeah. it's it's absolutely ridiculous that that is sexist what he's yeah. just said 
well, is and sexist. Truth be told, <clears throat> excuse me. Truth be told, it's it's not that um, women are suddenly thrust into this uh, position of being at the greatest risk of of getting infected with uh, infectious diseases. If you look at the uh, area of specialization in medicine for in, for infectious diseases, most physicians who are infectious disease specialists, like that's two-thirds men in that profession, um, only about a third are women. And if you look at various uh, specializations in medicine, that is really stark by comparison. If you look at um, other other areas, you're seeing more you're seeing closer to like a 50-50 divide. Uh, there's some areas that are dominated by women, like pediatricians. There's a lot more women. Pediatricians make pretty good money too. Um, but but infectious disease people who actually go into the profession choosing, knowing that they're they're dealing with things that that can be dangerous. Uh, men, you know. Um, so with this idea that it's mostly women at risk from the, the, the disease, this particular disease, this particular illness. Um, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the argument that women are victims of this. Uh, because, again, when you, you, you get the people that are researching it, you get the people that are um, doing the diagnostics and the uh, treatment plans and have to go in and, and see the patients on a regular basis for that purpose, um, that's men. And... You know, you get people that are still going to work. Most of the people that were off, that were uh, shut down, basically, were in things that were deemed non-essential. So uh, the restaurant business, waitresses, um, the, uh, you know, mail servers don't usually make as much money, so you don't see as many men going into that uh, unless there's a specialization that's going to get them a lot of tips, right? And... Uh, same thing with uh, you know a lot of retail environments that are not necessarily considered essential. Um, a lot of those were female dominated, but the people who continued to have to go break up fatbergs in the sewer, even though uh, there there may have been a virus in the sewer with them, uh, those were mostly men. You know the guys that still had to go to work with other people, even if they were in an environment where they might be exposed to somebody else who was sick. Um, to, to, to make sure you still had your electricity, make sure you still had your gas heat, uh, make sure you still had running water, um, things like that, mostly men. Uh, you know, the people that had to try to keep law and order uh, during, during all of the, the unrest we've had in the U.S. Uh, police officers are mostly men. There are female police officers, but the, the bulk of police forces are men. And, uh, particularly the ones that are like riot police and stuff like that if you uh, compare that to the rest of the police force a lot fewer women um, so yeah I, I, I have no sympathy for the claim that women have been at the forefront of responding to the pandemic women have been the for at the forefront of direct caregiving for people who are sick but I can't agree that we've been at the forefront of responding to the pandemic because there have been a variety of responses to a variety of challenges caused by the pandemic or the government's response to the pandemic. So that, that I, I'm calling bullshit there. Certainly in the UK, there's the whole idea of domestic abuse. Immediately when we went into lockdown, they started campaigning to get more funding. 
and they've had more funding and they've had millions upon millions upon millions of pounds worth of funding and they keep asking for more. This is never ending. And the whole premise is that um, we are people that are locked in together. There's going to be more abuse against women is what they're saying. And we've seen actually the hotlines for we've got one particular in the UK for men. They've seen the same level of increases as the women's hotlines that have said. However, there's been a national campaign for violence against women about um, the levels of domestic abuse. But the police reports that have come in are either unchanged or less than they were previously. And a lot of that will be because the one of the motivations behind domestic abuse is jealousy, whether it's perpetrated by a man or a woman. Yeah. And, and that jealousy is based on the fact that your partner goes out, you don't know where they are, they could be having an affair in your mind or they could be doing whatever. All of a sudden, you know exactly where your partner is 24-7. Yeah, it's kind of hard to so get jealous. That could reduce the incidence. Yeah, that could reduce the incidence of domestic abuse. We don't know is the is is the long and the short of it. But what I do know is the one and only um, helpline that is not gender biased in any way for men in the UK has received the grand total of not one penny of extra government funding because they will not take the knee to the violence against women gendered strategy. <laughs> the other um, helpline that is for men is run by the organization that actually accredits male perpetrator programs. And their number two principle is that, that domestic abuse is a gendered violence issue. And you go there and they, they take you through a whole load of not only have you got to prove that you're a victim of domestic abuse, you've also got to prove that you're not a perpetrator. Yeah, even in self-defense. So there's a massive skew. Yeah, so this whole gender inequality and masculinity issues, once again, is utter bollocks. Where, where's the gender inequality? Yeah, let's see that. What, what about asking about about men's men's inequality? What's happening with suicide rates? What's happening with the pressure on men? They never even talk about this. Nope. Do they even ask the 36 men gauge Europe's people? You know, that would be a good question for them to ask, but it doesn't look like it. It looks like they... they mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, so if there is um, gender equality or inequality in the government's... Uh, COVID-19 response, um, and when we're talking about, uh, you know, survivors of domestic abuse and stuff, um, why is it up to the government to actually monitor and, and uh, assess and uh, respond to that? You, you really want the government to be its own uh, keeper, watcher? Don't you think that perhaps third-party watchdog groups might be better for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, those are probably not very encouraged in the UK. Uh, but but really, there was a, a joke a while back um, here in the US, Hillary Clinton 
uh, had all kinds of corruption allegations and stuff in it. Uh, during one of the many controversies that she faced over that, her department investigated itself and found no wrongdoing. And, of course, no she's like, oh, well, we totally trust that. You have investigated yourselves and you found that you did nothing wrong. Congratulations, you're innocent. Um, can you imagine... <laughs> You know, did you did you mm. did you rob this store? Oh well, let me investigate myself, and I'll I'll get back to you. Um, <laughs> I don't think <laughs> yeah. it would work out so well, right? But but when the government does it, we just trust the government to investigate itself. Uh, come on, like that's that's some pretty yeah. But the 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 issue for this industry, the domestic abuse industry, is there isn't the level of scrutiny or yeah. evaluation that you would expect of any other sector. So I'm currently, well, I've, I've, I've just written it up. I'm, I'm looking at one of the most popular um, female victim intervention programs that's yeah. run in the UK. And I found it's been running since 1999 and it's available currently in 300 locations. And it's never been effectively evaluated. I found two evaluations, one of when it was run in a women's prison, and the conclusion for that was that it was not fit for purpose. And then one that we call grey data, which was a thesis, um, which pretty much came to the same conclusion. But these things are often just tripped out over and over without any real framework for scrutiny of like course. how many how, how much money are you going to have what does that look like one of the questions i would be asking is walk me through the victim's journey and tell me the cost implications and the benefits that's supposed to happen with throughout that journey what does that look like how does that cost in what's your follow-up what's your idea of success what does success look like do you have any follow-up evaluation so that we know what's happened with these victims do we do six months, 12 months, whatever? There's none of that. So the idea that this is accusing anybody of an afterthought is hypocrisy in itself. Yeah, yeah. It is the, the level, if, and I'm often challenged now, like, oh, are you always whinging about this? What would your solution be? My solution would be is disband these large domestic abuse organizations that are posing as charities when they're actually lobbyists yeah and push all the money into community services that are based on evidence and equality actual equality not their bullshit framed equality the end okay. of the last card here last statement on the last card uh, vital to pressure decision makers to take into account and address gender inequality and masculinity issues. So I just want to point out again, um, this is an establishmentarian idea. I, I will I will use that whether it's a word or not. It's establishmentarian. Uh, basically, these people do everything through government, through the establishment, through top-down control, um, and and where there may be gender inequality, where, whether whether there is or not, uh, where there may be gender inequality, they view it as something that the government has to change through policy 
and implementation of that policy, policing, um, funding of, of initiatives and things like that. And they never think of it as uh, something that might have social causes behind it that uh, change can be achieved by uh, changing people's understanding. And, and of course, they can't, if they do start addressing changing people's understanding, it's through demonization, not through humanization. Um, and and it, the way I would describe that is, if you go back to the civil rights movement in the 1960s, uh, Martin Luther King and his uh, crowd, the whole uh, movement surrounding what he did, was not about demonizing white people. It was never about demonizing white people. It was about humanizing black people. Not because they were not human, but because there were people who did not see their humanity. People who were blind to it, or who willfully avoided recognizing it. And they made it impossible to ignore. And that was valuable. And it served, uh, it served the black population of the United States by uh, improving their ability to uh, to have their humanity recognized and their human rights protected through their civil rights uh, under the law. And it served the white population of the United States because hate is very heavy and carrying it is a burden. And you're not a victim of that. Um, you're not a victim of, of carrying that burden. But it's still a relief to get to set it down. Right? The other person might be the victim of your hatred, but by golly, that's a lot of work to keep hating somebody and to not have to do that work anymore and to have the opportunity to just be part of a community and know people as people and work with people and be friends with people and have neighbors who are people and you recognize that, that's a privilege. That's a, it's a great privilege and that change benefited everybody and it was achieved all through humanization, not demonization. What feminists do today, they don't try to humanize women's circumstances, they have to demonize men. And it might be partly because the complaints that they have are not all valid, and where they are valid, they're not as big as they're trying to make them, um, and, and where they are big, they're not addressed properly by the way feminists are addressing them because feminists generally address them by fundraising and then claiming to have done something for the people on whose behalf they fundraised. Um, so it's it goes right back to what we talked about last week. Um, this is dangerous. And even though it seems silly and small and we can make fun of it, uh, this type of rhetoric is exactly the type of rhetoric what we've been looking at here in this video is exactly the type of rhetoric that if unconfronted and uncontradicted unchallenged eventually leads to the mentalities that tolerate state violence and once again brian you have yes. to begin and you have to end as as, right. as written in prophecy long ago <laughs> so tell us about your Friday call-in show. Uh, what was the topic? I think that you reprised the topic, and uh, how do you feel that it went? What, what do people have to talk about? 
All right. So on the Badger Lodge this week, I wanted to keep reading from the book King Warrior Magician Lover. Um, before I read through essentially the uh, preface and introduction, and then I took some calls. This time I started reading through the book uh, from the sort of, they have a section on what they call boy psychology and a section on man psychology. And we started the boy psychology section with the, um, the sort of predecessors to the main four archetypes, king, warrior, magician, lover. There is the divine child, the precocious child, the hero, and I, there's a, another one I can't remember. And so I read through the divine child, which is basically the precursor to the king archetype, and um, explained like the how these sort of appear in in as as uh, I guess in, in symbolic form in a lot of our stories, uh, the stories specifically the ones that persist and the ones that live on. And, and some of them are religious, like the story of Moses or the story of Christ, but others are are not. You know, there's um, they're just sort of like the, the, the symbols of, or they, they just sort of symbolize this, this divine child, which is, you know, on the one hand, um, very important, the center of attention. You know, everyone wants to uh, revere it. It causes, it, it, it's a cause of some, uh, supernatural things, you know, animals want to be close to it. People are drawn to it, but it's also helpless and uh, completely at the mercy of those who are supposed to care for it. And then there's the shadow part of the divine child, which is the high chair tyrant and the weakling prince. And it, we talk a little bit about what those are and how, you know, all of these things are in all people. But um, in this specific instance, we're talking about men before they become men, uh, according to this, the book's framing. So that was mainly what I read. I read those set the sections on the divine child, the weakling prince and the high chair tyrant. And then I took calls from the audience um, and that was that section. So next time I'll be reading the next section, which is called the precocious, the precocious child, which is the um, the precursor to the magician. So that was basically what I read. I thought it was quite interesting. I got a lot. Most of the people who watched found it an interesting topic and enjoyed it. Some didn't get it or they thought it was, uh, you know, BS or they didn't like, you know, uh, where it came from. But most people were pretty receptive. So. Awesome. So this is Colin Show exclamation point book reading and <laughs> being too literal <laughs> book reading of King Warrior magi um, ma 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 Magician. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Obviously, if I ever tried to be a magician, I'd probably be summoning frogs whenever I'm trying to do fireballs or something. Magician <laughs> Lover Part Two. Brian's Badger Lodge. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Honey Badger Radio. My name is Brian, and this is Brian's Badger Lodge, where uh, we take your calls and I'll do some reading. Uh, today, I'm going to be continuing from where I, where I left off, reading from the book uh, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. We're going to be getting into basically the real meat of it, the first uh, real chapter. It's called The Crisis in Masculine Ritual Process, which is from part one, which is entitled From Boy Psychology to Man Psychology. It seems to me that what they're getting at is, firstly, men have all four of the archetypes in them already. 
And so the book is trying to encourage the men that read it to sort of like uh, um, strengthen or uh, fortify the, those four archetypes in themselves against the shadow of those archetypes. So for every king, there's a tyrant, right? For every warrior, there's a violent psychopath and on and on. And on. So it's basically trying to warn against it. Masculine potentials. Those of us who have been influenced by the thinking of the great Swiss psychologist Carl Jung have great reason to hope that the external deficiencies we have encountered in the world as would-be men, the absent father, the immature father, the lack of meaningful ritual process, or the scarcity of ritual elders, can be corrected. And we have not only hope, but actual experience as clinicians and as individuals of inner resources not imagined by psychology before Jung. It is our experience that deep within every man are blueprints, what we can also call hard wiring, for the calm and positive mature masculine. Jungians refer to these masculine potentials as archetypes or primordial images. Jung and his successors have found that on the level of the deep unconscious, the psyche of every person is grounded in what Jung called the collective unconscious, made up of instinctual patterns and energy configurations probably inherited genetically throughout the generations of our species, through mostly female sexual selection, by the way. These archetypes provide the very foundations of our behaviors, our thinking, our feeling, and our characteristic human reactions. They are the image makers that artists and poets and religious prophets are so close to. Jung related them directly to the instincts in other animals. Most of us are familiar with the fact that baby ducks soon after they are hatched attach themselves to whoever or whatever is walking by at the time. This phenomenon is called imprinting. It means that the newly hatched duckling is wired for mother or caretaker. It doesn't have to learn from the outside, as it were, what a caretaker is. The archetype for caretaker comes online shortly after the duckling comes into the world. Unfortunately, however, the mother the duckling meets in those first moments may not be adequate to the task of taking care of it. Nonetheless, although those in the outer world may not live up to the instinctual expectation, they may not even be ducks, the archetype for caretaker forms the duckling's behavior. In a similar way, human beings are wired for mother and father and many other human relationships as well as all forms of the human experience of the world. And though those in the outer world may not live up to the archetypal expectation, the archetype is nonetheless present. It is constant and universal in all of us. We, like the duckling that mistakes a cat for its mother, mistake our actual parents for the ideal patterns and potentials within us. Archetypal patterns gone awry, skewed into the negative by disastrous encounters with living people in the outer world, that is, in most cases, by inadequate or hostile parents, manifest in our lives as crippling psychological problems. If our parents were, as the psychologist D.W. Winnicott says, good enough, then we are enabled to experience and access the inner blueprints for human relations in a positive way. Sadly, many of us, perhaps the majority, did not receive good enough parenting. The existence of the archetypes is well documented by mountains of clinical evidence from the dreams and daydreams of patients and from careful observation of entrenched patterns of human behavior. 
It is also documented by in-depth studies of mythology the world over. Again and again, we see the same essential figures appearing in folklore and mythology. And these just happen to appear also in the dreams of people who have no knowledge of these fields. The dying and resurrecting young god, for example, is found in the myths of such diverse people as Christians, Muslim Persians, ancient Sumerians, and modern Native Americans, as well as in the dreams of those undergoing psychotherapy. The evidence is great that there are underlying patterns that define human cognitive and emotional life. These blueprints appear to be great in number, and they manifest themselves as both male and female. There are archetypes that pattern the thoughts and feelings and relationships of women, and there are archetypes that pattern the thoughts and feelings and relationships of men. In addition, Jungians have found that in every man there is a feminine subpersonality called the anima, made up of the feminine archetypes, and in every woman there is a masculine subpersonality called the animus, made up of the masculine archetypes. All human beings can access all of these archetypes to a greater or lesser degree. We do this, in fact, in our interrelating with one another. This whole field is being actively discussed and continually revised as our knowledge about the inner instinctual human world moves forward. We are just beginning to sort out in a systemic way the inner human world that has always manifested itself to us in myth, ritual, dreams, and visions. The field of archetypal psychology is in its infancy. We want to show men how they can access these positive archetypal potentials for their own benefit and for the benefit of all those around them, maybe even for the planet. Let's look at the divine child that is, is supposed to eventually become the king once he becomes a man. The first, the most primal of the immature masculine energies is the divine child. Mm. We are all familiar with the Christian story of the birth of the baby Jesus. He is a mystery. He comes from the divine realm, born of a virgin woman. Miraculous things and events attend him. The star, the worshipping shepherds, the wise men from Persia. Surrounded by his worshippers, he occupies the central place not only in the stable, but in the universe. Even the animals in popular Christmas songs attend him. In the pictures, he radiates light, haloed by the soft, glistening straw he lies upon. Because he is God, he is almighty. At the same time, he is totally vulnerable and helpless. No sooner is he born than the evil King Herod sniffs him out and seeks to kill him. He must be protected and spirited away to Egypt until he can be strong enough to begin his life's work and until the forces that would destroy him have spent their energy. Accessing the Divine Child In order to access a Divine Child appropriately, we need to acknowledge him, but not identify with him. We need to love and admire the creativity and beauty of this primal aspect of the masculine self, because if we don't have this connection with him, we are never going to see the possibilities in life. We are never going to seize opportunities for newness and freshness. 
Whether activist, artist, administrator, or teacher, everyone in a leadership capacity needs to be connected with the creative, playful child in order to manifest his, pull, his full potential and advance his cause, his company, and generativity and creativity in himself and others. Connection with this archetype keeps us from feeling washed up, bored, and unable to see the abundance of human potential all around us. We have said that therapists often depreciate the grandiose self within their clients, although it is necessary at times for clients to gain emotional and cognitive distance from the divine child, we ourselves have not encountered many men, or at least among those who seek therapy, who identify with their own creativity. Rather, they usually need to get in touch with it. We want to encourage greatness in men. We want to encourage ambition. We believe that nobody really wants to be sort of gray normal. Often, the definition of normal is average. We live, it seems to us, in an age under the curse of normalcy, characterized by the elevation of the mediocre. Remember, this book came out in the 90s. It seems likely that therapists who persistently depreciate the shining of the grandiose self in their clients are themselves split off from their own divine child. They are envying the beauty and freshness, the creativity and vitality of the child in their clients. The ancient Romans believed that every human body or every human baby is born with what they called his or her genius, a guardian spirit assigned at birth. Roman birthday parties were held not so much to honor the individual as to honor that person's genius, the divine being that came into the world with him or her. The Romans knew that it was not the man's ego that was the source of his music, his art, his statecraft, or his courageous deeds. It was the divine child, an aspect of the self within him. We need to ask ourselves two questions. The first one is not whether we are manifesting the high chair tyrant or the weakling prince, but how. Because we all are manifesting both to some extent and in some form. At the very least, we all do this when we regress into our child when we are fatigued or extremely frightened. The second question is not whether the creative child exists in us, but how we are honoring him or not honoring him. If we are not feeling him in our personal lives and in our work, then we have to ask ourselves how we are blocking him. You, you talked about comic books earlier, and I know that you like comic books. Um, I, I read an article about how some people criticize superheroes. Oh, shoot. I, I, I can't remember why now. But um, the, the interesting observation they made is that superheroes aren't so much uh, advocating necessarily vigilante justice or toxic masculinity or whatever, but rather the the concept that people should do the right thing for their own reasons, which I thought was an interesting parallel. Yeah, that's the point. Uh, well, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, superheroes are stories for children in the same way that, you know, I, I watched a video uh, last night with Lindsay um, where essentially they, they found, they had these old, 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 sheets of paper that was homework and writings from a, a boy that they estimated is between the ages of like six and 10 years old living, I think in Pompeii. So like we're talking, you know, thousands of years ago, right? And this boy, or at least hundreds, it was a long time ago from Pompeii. 
And there, the, the, the video analyzed his homework and basically it, it was homework and studies where he was like um, writing the alphabet and stuff like that. But there were also all these drawings. He would like doodle in the margins, right? And he would doodle on his paper. And they would, and, and these were really old, right? And it was what, I think one of the things that's interesting about it is that, you know, we haven't changed that much. Like, I did the exact same thing. I would draw stick men in the margins of my homework. Or when I'm in class, or if I'm getting bored, you know? And, and if I'm doing something that is monotonous or repetitive, uh, which often was the case because I was one of those kids that, um, I just got bored in class easily and I probably would have been diagnosed with ADHD or something if, if I went to school later, but it turned out I was gifted yeah. and that's why. But anyway, the, but in the drawings, he was, he, he had a lot of drawings of like knights, you know, riding on horses and fighting monsters and like this kind of stuff that boys like. Right. And so what's, I think that superheroes are that for young boys in the modern era and they're just sort of updated i mean like there were kids who probably fantasized about you know zorro or um the three musketeers or whatever right um back even beowulf or something or or greek heroes like hercules so like um it's just sort of a carrying over of that in fact superheroes are literally uh, inspired by, you know, Greek lore and, and uh, you know, Greek mythology. And they're just sort of given a, a more modern, you know, look. And they were meant to appeal to young boys. And because of that, I think that people who make these sort of like realistic analyses of like where, you know, what superheroes symbolize and they, they go into the toxic masculinity garbage, they're, they're basically doing... Uh, the same thing that Frederick Wortham, who was this uh, psychologist, actually, in the 1950s, that tried to claim that uh, comic books were corrupting our youth, i.e. boys, by the way. And he attempted to get them. Essentially, he wanted them to be banned, but I think it resulted in the comics code instead. But my point is, um, what uh, it's true. What, what superhero comics are is basically like stories of heroism of old but you're not supposed to like get too literal in terms of like you know whether or not it's vigilante justice or <laughs> because you know you it, it's it's just like what boys want to do is they want to be they want to become men and they want to do good deeds for people who are weaker which is literally what superheroes are, but also you can see it in, you know, chivalric knights, and you can see it in yeah. samurai, and you can see it in cowboys. You can be, you look at any era, and there were men who were protecting people. Some of them were working for the government, some of them weren't, but that wasn't the point. The point was they were acting, and most importantly, it was a choice. So it wasn't like somebody was forcing them. It was they saw something was wrong. They wanted to fix it. So you can literally apply it to anything. And I think that that's the stuff that boys are attracted to. Yeah. Sorry, I've been thinking about like the parallels between comic books and video games now. And it is kind of funny. One of the greatest heroic archetypes of, of the younger generations is a fat Italian plumber. Yeah. But... He still saves the princess, so yeah, well, yeah he's doing, what, the, he's doing the right thing. That. Yeah, and I think yeah. video games are especially powerful because the whole thing is choice, right? Like when you mm -hmm. when you read 
a story like Treasure Island, for example, uh, you don't have any control over the narrative. Things are going to unfold exactly as they're going to unfold. But when you play a video game, this is, I think, another reason why they're so attractive is that, you know, when you make the choice to do the right thing, even if it's an illusion of choice, you feel like you're doing it. So it actually has um, it has even more power. That makes sense. Actually, this is this is this is like worthy of a, of a completely different discussion, but um, I like RPGs. And I've actually heard it proposed that RPGs actually do teach children moral behavior mm -hmm. because, um, again, there are good reasons to do bad things, but you get greater rewards for acting morally. And you don't, and you don't get punished if you act morally. Like, lawful good characters are generally the heroes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are you talking about tabletop or are you talking about video games when you say RPG? Well, um, my, my experience has been more with video games, but I, okay. it probably applies with tabletops, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I was just going to say, I want to add one more thing, and then I'm going to move on to the next person. Uh, they've right. actually done studies on video games where you can make good or evil choices, where there's two paths, right? And you can either make your character an evil character by choosing all of the evil mm -hmm. things, or you can make your character a good character by choosing all the good things. And some, they let you do a little bit of both. You can, like, go down the middle path. Um, what I heard is, more often than not, uh, players, and they don't gender this, but I think that it's probably mostly men, um, like men are far more likely to do all the good things when they're given the choice. So I don't know if it's because they just think that that's and, and it could be because that is going to be harder. But um, I th yeah, it, it's just something that turns out that men in general, uh, well, gamers, if they're given the choice between like a good e path or an evil path, they usually take the good path, at least for the first playthrough. Okay, and here we are at the end, but maybe not because we might have some funnies. Okay, Mike, cue him up if we got him. I wish a lot of luck to Harry because he's going to need it. Welcome to the subterranean lair under the subterranean lair. Everywhere we go, men are being shamed. They're being shamed for being men, for being masculine, for their interests, for their lack of interest, for how they express their emotions, or don't express their emotions at all. You want to just suck it up and tough it out. But that's shame, too. Being stoic is the reason why women are hurt, don't you know? Or at least that's what they say. Imagine a community where men don't need women's permission to be men, where women have men's back, because as strong as you are, Sometimes you need someone to notice you and take a moment to show that they care. Imagine the Honey Badger Radio community, men and women coming together to be their best selves and support each other overcoming all the messages that men and masculinity are bad and to blame for the world's ills. If you're interested in joining that community and taking your place by our side, helping us build a more compassionate, a more just, and just plain funny world, then go to feedthebadger.com. Support our community. Take part. Help us build something great together. The world needs masculinity. It needs men. It needs you. We recognize that. Support that recognition. Feedthebadger.com. 
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.